0: Well, Randy, thank you, and good morning, church. How is everyone doing today? Good, wonderful to see you. Whether you are on the live stream or you are here in the building, we are all the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us here today. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Jordan Erickson, and it's my great... Uh, privilege and honor to be able to serve this church as its student ministries director, and even more so to be able to uh, spend this morning with you opening up God's word and walking through it together. I just want to uh, reiterate what Kathy said in the announcements, a reminder that next week, September 13th, our second service start time is going to be moving from 1045 to 1030 And as the hyper extrovert of the office staff, I am very excited about that because that means I have to uh, wait 15 minutes less to actually be able to see and talk with all of you. So I love that. Uh, But if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and turn them to 1 John 2. Uh, Last week, we started a new series called First Love, where we are walking through 1 John as a church. And the idea behind this series title is that the Apostle John, the author of this letter, uh, is writing to the readers, both old and new, into a more focused look of what it means to love God, our first love, and to love people, or to first choose to love. And last week, Pastor Dave did an outstanding job of walking us through chapter 1 and the very beginning of chapter 2, where John spiritedly upholds the assurance of salvation that true believers in Christ have. Because gospel-centered love must start through the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. This morning, through that same lens of salvation, we are going to see what loving God and loving people might look like in our lives. Because, yes, loving God and loving people sounds nice, but what does it actually look like for those of us who are found in Christ Jesus? Before we get into that, let's read the text starting in chapter 2, verse 3. This is what the word of the Lord says. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God, is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John starts off this next section of his letter. He shifts from writing about fellowship with God, which is a topic that appeared three times in chapter one, to the truth and the idea of knowing God. And in verse three, John lays out what it means to know God. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, truth be told, I had to read this verse repeatedly to make sure I was understanding it correctly. We know that we have come to know. It seems a little oddly written, but there is a reason I wasn't super great at English in high school. Uh, but, the f- er, but calling back to last week, Dave discussed how John wrote this letter to two original audiences. The first being genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, people who knew the word of God, who desired to follow him. And they were being debated and ridiculed by the second audience this letter was written to, the Gnostics, who were the prominent heretics of the age. And John is using this letter to push back against the uncertainty the Gnostics are trying to cause true believers by reassuring them of the truth that they already know. Looking back at verses 1 and 2 in this chapter, we read this, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is reminding true believers that in Jesus, by this, by knowing Christ is our advocate, our savior, our propitiation, we now know who God is. And people know if we know God, by what? If we keep his commandments. John wants the readers of this letter to know that true fellowship with God comes from knowing God. And God's desire for us to know him personally, it's nothing new. We can see clearly in the very first part of scripture, Genesis 1 through 3, God creates Adam and Eve to be with him in the garden. Now if you're a creator of any kind, a, a baker, an artist, a writer, whatever it is, if you get your, your creative juices on, you understand the reality that you intimately know all of the details about your creation. You know just the right amount of ingredients to put into each recipe to make it perfect. The proper color blending techniques to make your portraits shine. The grammatical inserts you need to really make that story go from good to great. And that's what God is to us, church. God intimately knows every detail about you because he created you. But even more than a cake or a painting or a story We are a creation that is crafted with a heart and a mind and a soul that desperately craves to know and to be known. And more than just a casual friendship, God desires for you and I to intimately know him just as he intimately knows the details about us. But of course, the problem in this is that our sin separates us from God. And consequently, it prevents us from truly knowing who he is. Fortunately for us, God is far more faithful than we could ever imagine. Amen. And it is because of this faithfulness that he, in Jeremiah 31, which is later referenced in Hebrews 8, the Lord promises that he will make a new covenant with his people. And so this is what we see he says to his prophet. No more. The sin that once prevented us from truly knowing our creator was conquered by our advocate and propitiation in Jesus Christ, and because of his death and resurrection, we can truly know what it means to be in fellowship, to truly know the God who created us. And John doubles down on this by answering this question, what is the way to truly know if someone knows the Lord? And uh, to refer back to our previous answer to this question, it is if we keep his commandments. John wants these true believers to know that fellowship is knowing God, and knowing God is a lifestyle over an experience. Now let me ask you this, church, who are the people in your life you deeply care about? For some of you, it might be a spouse, a child, a friend, a family member. Every one of us has people who our souls crave to care about. But how do they know you truly know them? How do other people know that you truly know them as well? Is it in the way that you show love to them that you speak to their hearts? Is it the way that you talk about them to other people when they're not around? Is it the time that you spend together that reflects what you truly know about them? See, these three, these three things and many more have this in common, that they are always we live our lives. And just as we do with people, we show that we know and we love God by the way we live. And specifically, John writes: we show that we know God by the way we live out his commandments. It's why John follows up in verse 4 by saying that those who claim to know God but do not follow his commandments, they are liars, and the truth of the gospel is not in them. See, the Gnostics who John was trying to refute in this letter, they often claim to know God better than any of the other genuine Christians through, because they knew God through mystical experiences or rituals. And often because of this, they lived in contrast to what God's word actually said. So John says, look guys, it is not about an experience. It's not about a vision, a ritual, whatever. You know the truth if you know the gospel. And if you live out his commandments, if you keep God's word, both the promises that God makes to his children and the commandments he calls us to, the love of God in verse 5 is being perfected you. Now a quick side note on verse 5. the word perfected, some of your translations might say made complete uh, should be of great encouragement to every follower in Jesus Christ. See the word perfected or made complete, it is from the Greek word teleotai," which shares the same prefix as telestai," which is what Christ said on the cross. You might be familiar with it in the Easter story. It means it is finished. Where once the wrath of God was satisfied through Jesus' death, now through his resurrection and the lifestyle of the believer, the love of God is being made perfectly complete within you and I. But made complete doesn't just imply that it is, is being made in us, but it implies that there is a process involved in perfection. You do not become, nor is it required, to be instantly perfect the minute you choose to accept the gospel. Which, praise him for that, can we be honest with ourselves for a minute? There's a lot of false and undue pressure to be instantly perfect the minute you become a Christian. Yet God says, living out his commandments, holding fast to his word, is a part of the process God is using to perfect his love in you. And that's why John concludes this part of the letter in verse six with a clear and direct challenge to his readers. If you claim to know Jesus, you need to walk like Jesus. How do we know if someone is in Christ? How do we know if they know God, if they live in him? It's because they live out his commandments. Their life reflects the change that has gone on in their souls. Church, does your life look changed? Does it look like Christ in you in Galatians 2.20? Does it look like the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5.17? Does it look like Ephesians 4.22, where you are casting your old life off and trading it for a new one? Does your life look like the Jesus who saved it? Because after you've been saved by Jesus Christ, the next step to loving God and loving people is to show it, to live it, now, as I was writing this, I began to think personally, um, and I'm sure many of you are thinking in this room, uh, that, yes, Jordan, we agree Jesus is the standard. We agree with that. We affirm it. It's awesome. But Jesus is literally God. And how am I supposed to reach the standard of the Godhead? And let me reassure you with this, that we don't have to look very far. We just go back to John's gospel to see that it is, in fact, possible with a little bit of help to live like Jesus did. In John 14:26, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and he says this to them, "But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you." Church, this is great news. The Holy Spirit has our backs. He is the one who empowers us to walk like Jesus did. And we know from Galatians 5 that we can be confident somebody has the Holy Spirit in them when they show what? The fruits of the Spirit. So the evidence to be sure if somebody knows God is to see if they follow his commandments by living a fruit-bearing life. And so yes, now we understand that living a Spirit-filled, fruit-bearing life, that's how we walk as Jesus did. But uh, what are the commandments that I need to follow. Church, if I were to ask you that, what commandments does God want his people to follow? What would you say to me? This is the participation part of the sermon. I'm just playing. I heard one person. Good job. Uh, and it was the right answer, so nice work. We know from Mark 12, 30 and 31, and it's also expressed in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. It's on these two commandments that the law and the prophets rest. Now, what does that term mean? The law and the prophets rest. It means this the entirety of every single one of God's commands to his people can be summarized into two sentences Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And John, having grown up in Jewish culture, knows that both of these commandments are familiar to his readers. In fact, they're not just familiar. These are two commandments found in the earliest passages of Scripture. Jewish Christians would have likely heard them regularly growing up in their houses of worship. Imagine from the time you enter into the nursery here at Lakewood all the way to the time you retire, you would be hearing these same commandments. It's why John writes, "...I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment you have heard from the beginning." It's actually in Leviticus 19.18 where we first see the direct phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Back in the days of Moses, Leviticus, as he was writing it, God was calling the Israelites to love those who were different, to love the poor and the needy, to love the foreigners and the refugees as they would have loved their own people. But in verse 8, we see John interestingly assert that loving your neighbor while it is an old commandment, is in fact also a new commandment. A new old commandment. Hmm. But here's the reality, church. Loving your neighbor is made complete in Jesus. And that term, made complete, is the same one that we saw in verse 5. Jesus perfects our ability to love our neighbor. See, Jesus did not just come down to earth to remind us How to love other people. He revolutionized what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he revolutionized who our neighbor is. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the Good Samaritan, Jesus is challenged with the question, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus rocks everyone's world in the room by making the Samaritan the cultural and historical enemy of the Jews the hero of the story. See, that means for Jesus and therefore God, loving your neighbor is no longer just about loving those who are different. It's no longer just about loving those who have less money than you or who are from faraway lands. God now calls for you and I to love every single one of those people and those we would call our enemies. Now, let's be honest here. I'm sure every single one of us could probably take about one second to uh, pick who our enemies in life are. Uh, Enemies for us might be those who have different theologies than us. Have we been guilty of bad-mouthing people in our church or bad-mouthing other churches? Maybe it's people with different political ideologies than us. It's 2020. Watch the news for 10 seconds. Um, Anyone who you might consider an enemy, though, now falls under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, who he calls us to love. And in John 13, Jesus doubles down on his call to love others, including our enemies, by issuing this new command in verses 34 and 35. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." How do you know, church, if someone truly knows God? How do you know if they have been saved by Jesus Christ? By the way they love their neighbor. And remember, we just talked about it, the fruits of the Spirit. There are easy ways to measure and to see how we can love our neighbors, enemies and all. Ask yourself this today, church. Am I being patient with people who irritate me? Am I being kind to those I disagree with? Am I fostering peace and gentleness and goodwill towards those who will vote differently than me? Am I willing to, just like Jesus did, step in and care for others, even at the expense of my own convenience? When you are living a fruit-bearing life, it is not difficult to know and witness what love looks like from a true believer of Jesus Christ. That's why John says, those who love their brothers, they are in the light And there is no cause for stumbling. Because when you have light, you know where you're going. Why? Because you can see. You can see clearly what it means to truly love your neighbor or your brother as yourself. When you are in the true light of Jesus Christ, your life will reflect that to the dark world. You will have direction. You will have love. You are being empowered even as we sit here today to live a life worthy of the gospel that saved you. But John does warn that for those who hate their brothers, they are still in the darkness. They cannot see because darkness has blinded them. Is there somebody in your life or a group of people who you are having trouble loving? Are you being blinded by your frustration and your anger towards those people? If you are struggling with loving your neighbor this morning, I have some reassuring news for you. See, John writes in verse 9 that for those who are struggling with loving their neighbor, they are still in the darkness. But here's the reality. Still in the darkness implies that you don't have to be in the darkness forever. No, if we look back just one verse, church, that darkness, it is already passing away. And the true light of Christ is already shining. Whatever sin you are wrestling with today, whether it is loving your brother or something else, I need you to know this today, wherever you are watching from, that there is freedom and there is victory to be found in Jesus Christ. He took our sins to the cross, and he won at the resurrection. And he is looking at you and I today, and he is not just saying, come as you are. He is saying, come as you are and be restored by me. Give me your sins, church, and I will give you life. Come and see what it means to be loved by me and to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come see what it means to be known by me and to make me known to other people by the way you love them. And it's this assurance of victory now and victory forever in the true light of Christ that empowers believers to do what we have been talking about all morning. It empowers us to keep his commandments and to love other people well. Now, what I really love about John, especially in these three letters that he writes to these churches, is that he is able to take very distinct ideas and topics. There's actually four of those in the passage that we're reading today. But he writes them all in such a way that they are interconnected. And we've seen the first two ideas, right? Keep his commandments, walk as Jesus walked, and the other one, to love your neighbor as yourself or love your brother so that you can be walking in the true light of Christ. And these are both fantastic points because when we live these out, God's love is being perfected in us. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, right? So the Holy Spirit, when you choose to keep his commandments, when you choose to love your neighbor as yourself, he is leading you towards holy perfection. Um, And all of those are great for our lifestyle, right? But how many of you, when you first met Jesus, knew exactly what to do to love God and love people? Nobody? Great. But that's okay to admit, right? Because here's the reality of that idea, church. You didn't know what to do right away because how could you? Before you met Jesus, though, somebody loved you enough to share the gospel with you. And once you got saved, once you heard the gospel, you met Jesus Christ, somebody loved you enough to help you understand what it meant to follow him, to know his word, to keep his commandments. And we call that discipleship. In this part of the letter, John asserts that discipleship is a family matter. And here's what I mean by that. There's really two roads that you can discuss discipleship as a family matter with. The first one being this idea of literal family discipleship. See, both Barb Filiatro and I, as the kids and student ministries directors, we desire to partner with families, parents, and guardians to support them as the primary disciple makers of their families. We want Uh, excuse me, we want families to raise strong followers of Christ, not just uh, their kids, but we want everyone in the house to follow Jesus well. But it's along with this literal family-based discipleship that we also desire, and this is what John more specifically writes about here, is for every person, child, student, and beyond, to feel like a part of the church family, where they can build supportive, discipling relationships with others outside of their households. See, John believes that every member of the church body has a role to play in discipling one another to love God and love people. It's why in verse 12, he initially addresses all believers by saying, I am writing to you, and I am writing to you is important, because when you write something to somebody, uh, not email, but on pen, uh It is permanent, right, because of the ink, and it's also more important than just a passing comment in a conversation. And so John says, I am writing to you, it's permanent, it's important, little children. And this first mention of children is he is addressing all true believers, Because we know from scriptures like Ephesians 1 and 1 John 3 that when you and I accept the truth of the gospel, we are adopted into God's family as his children. And so John says, hey, everyone, if you have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your sins are forgiven, you are children of God. That's the baseline of your identity in Christ. John then goes on in verses 13 and 14 to address three distinct age groups. We see him say, children, once more, these are people who have only known Jesus for a short period of time, but because of their fresh eyes in the faith, because of their new excitement to be known by God, they know him back. And then he goes on to address fathers, those who have been believers for a long time. Notice, though, that John writes the same thing for them twice. You know him who is from the beginning. And that's not a mistake. See, John understands that mature, experienced mothers and fathers have an incredible value to our church because their faith has withstood serious testing over time. They have been able to grow firm in their commitment to the Lord. And furthermore, having known God from the beginning, they've likely kept his commandments and walked in the true light of Christ for a long time. And then the last group that John addresses is young men who are strong and who, through the already present victory of Jesus Christ in their lives, hold firm to God's word and overcome the evil one. And I think it's important to note that these are not just physical age groups, but they are spiritual ones that John is referencing. You initially come to know Jesus Christ, you are adopted as a small child, you grow into a young man or woman of Christ, and then you become a father or a mother of the faith. We are all children of God, but we also see people, depending on when they first meet Christ, in different stages of their walk. We know that there are men and women in their 80s and 90s who are meeting Jesus for the first time, and they get to enjoy their adoption as God's children into the family. We also know that there are men and women in their 20s and 30s who are mature young men and women or fathers and mothers of the faith because of how long they've known Christ and how they carry themselves in their lives. And I need you to understand this before we move on, though, that whatever faith age group you find yourself in, there's nothing to be ashamed about because all of those belong to Christ. Amen? I can't begin to tell you how many times as the student ministries director, um, I, as well as my team of lifeguards, we do our best to disciple our students every single week faithfully. But I often find myself wondering who learns more, me or the students, uh, when it comes to our week-to-week ministries. But the truth is, church, is that we need every single one of these age groups. Every single person, regardless of if you're a child, a young adult, or a, a parent of the faith, you have a valuable and crucial role to play in the discipleship of your church family. We need strong mothers and fathers of Christ to raise up childlike believers to know God, to follow his commandments, what it means to bear fruit, we need children brand new to the faith to remind us of what truly matters in life, that we should live in such a way that God has made known to all people so all people have the chance to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, we need strong young men and strong young women to continue doing the good work of living out the great commission, of overcoming the evil one, and encouraging mothers and fathers in the faith that their work was not in vain. We need discipleship to be a family matter both in the home and in the church because when the church comes together to teach its members, regardless of their physical or spiritual ages, to know God by following his commandments and to love their neighbors as themselves, we raise up an army of light bringers who are ready to bring true hope true freedom, and true victory to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And when we teach our families how to love God and love people well, this is how John ends our text here, we teach them not to love the world. We teach them to love something that truly matters. We teach them to love something that's eternal, that is worth giving their lives to. Because the world, it's pride, it's lust, it's darkness, It's passing away as we speak. But those who do the will of God abide forever. Isn't that what matters, church? To teach other people what it means to live forever by knowing and accepting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That though we are all sinners, God in his love for us sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take our sins to the cross And though he died on the cross, three days later, he beat sin and death by rising again. And when we believe these truths and we confess them with our mouths, we will be saved. And what is the easiest way for people to see Christ in us? By the way we live out his commandments to love God and love people well. And when we do these things, people might think we're odd but we need not be ashamed. There's no cause for stumbling when you are following in God's true light. Church, I encourage you today that as you leave this building or you log off the live stream to radiate the true light of Jesus Christ in how you live. Bear the fruit of the Spirit to love others even when it's difficult. Follow the commandments to show others what it means to truly know the God who gave us life Look for opportunities to connect with your church family, especially those you haven't met yet, so that you might be mutually encouraged and strengthened in doing the work that God has called you to. Because we know this from John's letter, that every single person in this room, every single person watching this service, we are the church, and everyone in the family has a part to play in raising strong men and women of Christ. If you have never had the opportunity to meet Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you feel the need to reconnect with him today because you've been walking in darkness and you want to see where you're going, I would love for this to be the day you make the best decision of your life. I'd encourage you, if somebody brought you today, pray with them. We'll pray in just a second here, but uh, don't miss out on the opportunity to know what living in Christ looks like today. Would you pray with me, please? And then Pastor Brent's going to come up to lead us in communion. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word, which is alive and active. God, we thank you that you still speak to us through your scriptures. And Lord, for those who don't know you today, we know these truths and we confess them with our mouths that Though we are sinners, you loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us, and then Jesus rose from the dead three days later so that we can be forgiven and that sin and death might be conquered, and we confess that to you today. For those who feel the need to to reconnect with you, to rededicate their lives to you, Lord, we admit and we confess that sometimes, oftentimes, we can walk and stumble in the darkness. But Lord, we desire no more to walk in darkness, but to walk in the true light of your salvation. And God, for those of us here who um, have been encouraged by your word today, we thank you that to know you is to live out what you call us to in your word. And that's my prayer for every single person in this room, that the Holy Spirit would ignite their hearts to live your commandments out, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we know we live in a world right now, even before 2020, we know we live in a world that needs you, that needs your hope and your freedom and your victory. God, would you give us opportunities this week and forever to share the gospel both in how we live and with the words that we might speak so that people can come to know you. Lord, bless our time as we enter into communion today. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And as we remember your son's sacrifice today, we just ask that we would honor that well. It is in your holy, powerful, and righteous name we pray. Amen.